0: Good morning. Good morning. Come on, second service. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Much better. Much better. Uh, my name is Matt Sawada. I introduced myself a little bit earlier to you. i uh, one of the pastors here at LEC, and once again, it truly is an honor to open God's Word with you today. Well, if you've been uh, with us throughout the summer, maybe your first time this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. I've been stepping through Exodus 20 as we've, we're kind of looking at each one each week. And the sermon series began in June. we will end at the end of August. Uh, the series is titled Written in Stone. Written on your heart. Written in stone. Written on the heart. And this morning, we are going to step into The seventh commandment, Exodus 20, verse 14. I've got some friends. They're coming down the aisle right now with Bibles. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. They'll hook you up. Uh, Or version app. Go to the Bible app, find an event labeled LEFC, and you can follow along with us there. So this seventh commandment is uh, in the NIV, four words. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. So this morning, as we, as we step into that, uh, know that we're stepping into, uh, there's a, a small little triad. There's a, a group of three commandments. We've got the, the don't murder, the don't commit adultery, and the don't steal. Some people think that they, they're kind of grouped together. Corey Mitchell, last week, Uh, It was one of our elders, he preached, he he says, these six, easy way to remember it, don't take someone's life, their wife, or their stuff, (laughs) right? Simple, we're done, amen, let's go. Don't take their wife, don't take take their life, their wife, or their stuff. Thanks, Corey. (laughs) Nick, that's yours next week. So this morning, as we look at the seventh commandment, we uh, are going to define adultery, we're gonna discuss why adultery is sin. Then we're gonna see how Jesus redefines adultery. There's a redefinition that happens in Matthew chapter five. So we'll, we'll look at Jesus's redefinition and then whether we're married or not, we're gonna see how that redefinition applies to every single one of us today. So before I pray and invite God into this, Uh, I'd just like to make a quick statement. Many of us know, all of us know, that our our culture is incredibly sex-obsessed. It is something that has consumed our culture. And even though our culture is sexually broken, we have a God who redeems brokenness. And through his son Jesus, there's hope. There is hope in the gospel for renewal and redemption. And so if you walk out with two things, right? Life, wife, and stuff, there you go. But also know that he is our redeemer in the midst of a very broken sexual culture. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we are thankful once again to to open your word in, a, in an act of worship this morning. Father, this is a continuation of the songs we just sang about your love, your lavish love for us. You are a great God. Great are you, Lord, who has loved us lavishly and abundantly. Father, I pray this morning that you would, uh, that your spirit would move Father, we, we need you in our lives and we need him this morning to comfort those who need comforting, to encourage those who need encouragement, and to convict and challenge those who need to be convicted. So please, uh, may your spirit move this morning as we open your word together. We love you, Father, and we don't deserve the love that you've extended to us. And we say thank you Thank you, not just for being a great God, but being a great God who loves us lavishly. Father, thanks for this time. We commit it to you and pray your name, amen. Amen, amen. So I'm gonna restate myself. In case you haven't noticed, we live in a sex-obsessed culture. One author framed it this way. He said, sex has so infiltrated the oxygen of our culture that it is almost impossible not to breathe it in. And sadly, you know, we can walk through Giant and you, you see it on all the magazines. You look at Netflix and it's, it's more shows you can't watch than you probably can. There are, are books, look at the top 10 list at the bookstore. I, I haven't done it so I, I shouldn't say that, but look at that and, and see, there, probably filled with books that are sexual in nature. They're sexually implicit. This is a reality of our culture. And unfortunately, very little of the conversation on sex within culture is good, true, or faithful to the design of the creator. Very, actually, probably none of it is true, faithful, or good in reflection of who's created it. The beautiful gift of sex has been distorted. There's a distortion. And as we begin this morning, speaking on Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, I think we have to ask a pretty important question. If that command tells us to not commit adultery, I think we have to ask the question, what is adultery? If he's telling us not to do it. We need to discern what, what, what actually is it? So Webster tells us this, strictly defined, adultery is strictly defined as sexual relations between a married man and a woman who is not his wife, or sexual relations between a married woman and a man who is not her husband. In other words, adultery is two persons who are sexually involved, not married to each other, and one of them actually is married. That doesn't mean uh, premarital sex is, is okay. That's called fornication in scripture. But adultery is a term that speaks specifically to the breaking of marriage. Ray Fowler, he's a pastor, uh, author, says this. Adultery is a specific form of sexual immorality that directly violates the marriage covenant directly violates it you know if you're anything like me growing up uh, I would hear these 10 commandments I called them the top 10 these are God's top 10 and as a third grader as an elementary schooler I always wondered why is why is this a commandment right I could understand uh, the first two or three right God's got to be God let's set God up God let's God be God I understand like hey don't don't kill somebody Murder is bad. A thief, being like, stealing, this is bad. Like, that, those were easy for me as an elementary schooler to understand. But it was a little harder for me as an elementary schooler to understand, why, is, why, is, why do I have to honor my parents? Like, why is that a top 10? And then as an elementary schooler, understanding why is there a commandment on adultery? Like, what? I just, I couldn't wrap my mind around the importance of these two commands. And as I've gotten older, i realized that by giving the command, don't commit adultery, God is actually encouraging his people to do something. So it's one thing to say no to this, but by saying no, you're actually saying yes to something else. And in this command, Exodus 20, verse 14, he is really encouraging them to Honor marriage. Hebrews 13.4, the author in Hebrews, I think hits the nail on the head. And he says this, marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and this, and all the sexually immoral. You guys catch that? Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So let me state the obvious. If God's telling us to not commit adultery, and in Hebrews, we're hearing this message of let us honor marriage, let us elevate that, one way to do that is to not commit adultery and then to avoid sexual immorality. It's kind of the end of the verse. Don't commit adultery and avoid sexual immorality. So then the question is, I'm just asking a lot of questions here today, why avoid it? Why does adultery, why does sexual immorality dishonor marriage? I'm glad you asked. Well, first of all, adultery is a sin against God, because God is holy and pure, We have a holy and pure God, amen? And that God, again, uh, does not agree with anything that is unholy or impure. Joseph got this. Back in Genesis 39, Joseph was working for this guy named Potiphar. Potiphar leaves and Potiphar's wife basically approaches Joseph, basically comes onto Joseph and says, hey, let's do this thing. Joseph says no. And his response in nine of Genesis says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my God? Joseph understood that adultery was sin because it was unholy and his God was holy. You see this in Ephesians chapter five, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Ephesians 5.3. So adultery is a sin against God because God is holy and pure and adultery is not. Secondly, adultery is a sin not just against our holy God but it's a sin against your spouse and your family. Proverbs 2, 16 and 17 is talking about the adulteress who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. So when we step into adultery, we betray the covenant of marriage and its faithfulness. It's not just a sin against God because he's a holy and pure God. It's also a sin against the spouse that you've committed to. Adultery adultery betrays a spouse's deepest trust. And it's a sin that's incredibly hard to forget. A third reason I think God gives us this command it's not just because God's a holy God, it's not just a sin against our spouse and our family, but it defiles the marriage relationship. Again, Hebrews thirteen four: marriage should be honored and elevated by all in the marriage bed kept pure. Marriage is meant to reflect the unity between God and his people, between Christ and the church, in any sexual immorality, especially adultery, distorts this picture that God has given to us to understand this relationship. I think honoring marriage might be one of the best apologetics within today's culture. Best apologetics. One of the best ways to display and declare the gospel through this marital union. God uses this union between a husband and wife to articulate the mystery of the gospel in Ephesians 5. He uses a ton of marriage language talking about Christ and his church, the bride. We see a a marriage happen in Genesis. Beginning of Genesis, we see a marriage happen at the end in Revelations, Revelation, sorry. And so marriage is a theme throughout all of Scripture So what makes this marriage union so unique? What makes it it special? Well, one of the many reasons, there's a lot of different reasons, but I'm just gonna poke at one, it's this term, one flesh. This concept of two becoming one. This concept of uh, a selfless relationship, of loving and serving each other, much like the Trinity, right? Marriage is two becoming one. Trinity is three in one God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. All interact and relate in perfect submission, in love, in service to one another. Our union is, is somewhat similar. And so this term, one flesh, then begins to, to answer the next question Sex. What's the purpose then of sex? Is it enjoyment? Absolutely. That is a purpose of sex. It's not the only one. And I think that's where culture has gotten this wrong. If you only approach sex as a means for enjoyment, then who you do that with doesn't matter. They forget that Or maybe they don't know, but they ignore the reality that there are other purposes of sex. So yes, sex is for enjoyment, but secondly, sex is for procreation. Be fruitful and multiply. God has created a man and a woman in such a way that they can create. That's a massive purpose of sex. I think there's also... Is it more important, less important? It's for communication. (laughs) You married couples know if you're not communicating well, it's, it's not easy then to enter into sex. It forces two sinners to have to understand and process and talk about stuff together. See, sex is about this union, Think about it. The last image we have of a pre-fall reality is, is mentioned in Genesis 2, 25. Right before Genesis 3 happens. And in Genesis 2, verse 25, Adam and Eve are standing there and they are what? Anyone know? Exactly. I'm assuming you said this. They are naked and unashamed. Naked and Unashamed. To be created in the image of God is to be created into relationship with both God and others. We are meant for this intimacy. We are, are meant to be known with no shame. And Adam and Eve were able to experience this naked and unashamed reality with a spouse as well as with their father. And the fall in Genesis 3 shattered that. See, God created sex as an opportunity to enjoy this intimacy. He created sex as the the coming together of two people, emotionally, spiritually, as well as physically. That makes human sexuality different. It's human sexuality is actually a reflection of the creator. Its very foundation is built on safety and security and love and trust and honesty That's what it means to be known. Is there anything more intimate? Is there anything more vulnerable? This is why God gave us sex, as a gift to those in a monogamous, lifelong relationship between a man and a woman. It's in that Petri dish, it's in that context of a safe, vulnerable, intimate relationship that this connection, this union, this one flesh reality can can flourish. I wish someone would have told me this before we were married, Robin, my wife and I. I wish I would have had this sermon 20 plus years ago. I wish someone would have explained that sex isn't just physical. That sex is not just about a release. It's about connection. It's a holistic connection. I'd even venture to say it could be even more of an emotional, spiritual connection than a physical one. I'm not saying it's not that, but I think it, you could argue that. Church, don't settle for the crumbs of culture when God has offered you a feast. Sexual sin distorts marriage. And as you can imagine, the relationship between spouses is dramatically distorted when someone else sexually enters the picture. If this is a reality that you've experienced, forgiveness is possible. (laughs) There's so much grace. There's so much hope for a relationship that's been distorted by sexual sin. However, there are consequences for these actions. I'd encourage confession and repentance. I'd encourage you to seek wise counsel. I'd encourage you to pursue restoration and hopefully one day re-earn trust. This takes time, this takes a lot of time often. For those of you who've been hurt from this sexual distortion, this distortion of marriage, please hear me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What you've experienced is not how God intended a sexual relationship to play out. And please know that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things, and oftentimes forgiveness may be extended while reconciliation isn't possible. As a pastor who meets with and works with couples, sexual betrayal is one of the most intense relational pains I've witnessed the destruction of this intimacy, destruction of this unique union and the marital oneness between spouses is absolutely brutal and is a painful byproduct of adultery. God gives us the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery to protect his people from this pain, but also to set us apart from culture. So that we can honor and elevate this relationship rather than live in pain. Proverbs 6.32 says this, a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. I'd like to add to that. A man who does so also destroys his wife. A wife who does that also destroys her husband. I don't think this is gender specific. So Jesus then takes this commandment, Exodus 20, 14, to the next level. He levels it up, or at least he levels it down. Depends on how you wanna look at it. Uh, He takes it to the heart level. And he gets a little bit more pointed. Matthew 5, 27 and 28 says this. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Okay, we've just spent 20 minutes talking about that. I got that, Matt. Jesus then changes. He flips the script and says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So just as we defined adultery a few minutes ago, I think we need to do justice and define lust. Adultery was sexual relations between two people uh, who are not married and one of them being married. Lust is a little different. Lust is is an intense longing or desire and it's usually sexual in nature. I've never heard someone say, I am lusting after that Snickers bar. This just doesn't happen. You might say, I want that Snickers bar. I desire that Snickers bar. Thank you. You're welcome. You're all now hungry. Uh, you, I've never heard someone say, I, Matt, I am just lusting over that Coke. You'll say, I, I want that. I'm thirsty. I desire it. That Coke looks really good. You don't lust over these objects. Lust is typically sexual in nature. Sexual impurity begins in the desires of the heart. Warren Wiersbe, commentator, says this. He says, Jesus is not, not saying that lustful desires are identical to lustful deeds, According, advocating that if a person lusts, they might just as well go ahead and commit adultery. That is not what he is saying. Jesus is saying, no, the desire and the deed are not identical, but spiritually speaking, they're equivalent. You guys catch that? The desire and the deed are not identical, but spiritually speaking, they're equivalent. I thought that was really helpful. The man Jesus describes in Matthew 5 uh, looked at the woman for the purpose of feeding his inner sensual appetite as a substitute for the act. Paul Tripp says Christ is saying that our behavior is more directed by what's inside us than the people and situations outside us. He's saying that the sexual struggles are inescapably struggles of the heart. That physical adultery is simply the body going where the heart has gone long ago. And as he says in this, Christ gives thoughts and desires the moral value of actions. You don't cross the adultery boundary when you have illicit sex. You cross that boundary when you give your heart to thoughts and desires that are outside of God's will for you. So a few thoughts here. The sermon isn't just for men. I think the sermon is for all of us. The sermon isn't uh, just for those who are married. I think this reality pokes at all of us because it steps away from a, an Exodus 2014 seventh commandment. And what Jesus does is now he makes it a first and second commandment. He's shifting this from adultery to idolatry. And I would venture to say that in most cases, sex isn't even the idol. Self is. Because in those moments, it's what I want. It's what makes me feel good. It's the pleasure, it's the control, the comfort, the power, it's the escape. It's the avoidance of something else, and I'm gonna find something here. So the idol isn't the image or the person or even the act the idol's in us and all of those things point back to self it's in these instances that sex is the vehicle that feeds the idol within our hearts and so sexual immorality is at the root both an idolatry issue and a heart issue when we we have taken it upon ourselves to meet our needs. We have distorted God's intended purpose for sex. God did not create sex to be about the individual. No. Sex is a kind gift of the Lord to a committed married couple, it should be about us. And not me. So, any sexual immorality distorts not only the relationship between spouses, but it distorts my relationship with my Jesus. If this is an idolatry issue, it's not just a horizontal marriage distortion, this is a vertical distortion. Right? Well, let's see what Paul says about sexual immorality. It's a fun journey. Colossians 3, verse five. I can't get there. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There we go. Verse five. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Here we go. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So he's saying these things, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, lust, they are evil desires, and Paul is encouraging us to kill them. Put them to death. Why? Galatians 5. We know Galatians 5 for the famous verse, verse 22. Talks about the fruits of the Spirit which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Yeah, you know the song. Well, you're welcome for that. You'll be singing that all day. Um, But the verses before it, this is a song we don't sing, (laughs) right? Verses 19, 20, and 21, these are the acts of the flesh. So he's told us already to put to death these things. Why? Because they are fleshly in nature. The acts of the flesh, verse 19, are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Saying, they're not only earthly in us, this is our flesh. These are fruits of our flesh. These are fruits of the idolatry factories that are in our heart. Why is this a big deal? Again, glad you asked. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 18. Paul tells the church in Corinth, flee from sexual immorality, flee from the the earthly desires, flee from the fleshly realities, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Put to death, therefore, all that is earthly within you. For these are fleshly fruits in Galatians 5. And why are these two things bad? Because if you know Jesus, you've been given a gift of His spirit, and his spirit lives in you. It's this battle that's going on. It said honor God with your bodies, because your body is a temple, because the spirit resides in it. Sexual immorality has no place in our bodies. And when we turn to these things, we are living contrary to the Spirit who is in us and in you. Do you guys get this? Paul drives this nail home even just a little farther. We're in Romans 1. And this is a hard passage. This is in verse 24. He said, therefore, God gave them over in the sexual desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the created. Worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. This is idolatry. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. The stuff is earthly. These are earthly desires that are natural, unfortunately, natural byproducts of our flesh. And they are contrary to the spirit residing in us. And when we follow these desires, we have exchanged worshiping our creator for something created. And I believe in sexual immorality, we have exchanged God for ourselves and are not worshiping ourselves rather than him. When we distort sex, sexuality, we distort our relationship with Christ because his spirit resides in us. And most of us, when confronted with texts like this, we respond in a couple different ways. Some of us will say, man, I gotta, I gotta try harder. I just gotta do better it becomes behavior modification. Some of us will, will expose the sin. You know, we'll live in obedience. And we're, we do not wanna be in bondage to what is hidden in the darkness. And so we live obediently walking in line with his, his spirit. Others of us are gonna justify. We're gonna justify our actions, and get as close to the line as possible. Imagine this, a dating relationship. You're dating somebody, and we're going to be able to do A, B, C, D, and E sexually as long as we don't do F. Let's get as close to that line as possible rather than running towards Christ. We don't sit as close to the fire as possible or don't just sit in the fire, run towards Christ. Many of us will, it might be the movies we watch. The movies that we watch are okay as long as my kids aren't in the room. The movies I watch are okay as long as my wife doesn't know I'm watching them. It's okay for me to to have these images in my mind, in our minds, or it's the books we read. They stimulate something in me. I don't really like what it does, but I like what it stimulates. Or maybe it's that website. You know that phrase, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? We often live by this rule of what happens on my computer on my phone stays on my computer on my phone. That doesn't make it okay. These things are classified as sexual immorality. For example, pornography. It's an epidemic in our culture, epidemic. The statistics are staggering. The hours spent watching it and on it, it's a billions, probably trillions dollar industry. The lives that have been affected by pornography are just mind-boggling. What begins as a simple fascination and click of a mouse becomes what author David White says, states it's an enslaving addiction. David White, he wrote a book, God, Sex, and You. It is phenomenal. If you wanna read more on this, I would highly recommend it. He says this, for many, internet porn becomes an enslaving addiction coupled with the false comfort of solo sex. God intends sex to happen in the context of selflessness, mutual love, and affirmation expressed within the deep safety of a committed lifelong relationship. Pornography shatters every aspect of what God intended. Shatters. So what we think is a a click of a mouse and might seem harmless, it has the potential to wreck havoc within your life relationally as well as within your relationship vertically. LFC, sexual addiction is real. And in some ways we're probably all guilty with this idolatry. But there's so much hope in Jesus. Remember, shame and guilt are not gospel concepts. They are not part of the fruits of the spirit listed in Galatians 5, 23. So how do we respond to sexual sin? How do we respond to it? Again, statist- statistically speaking, there are many of us in this room who are probably uh, struggling with sexual sin. I'd encourage you, church, begin vertically. Confess and repent and then repeat. It's a three-step process. But then I wouldn't stop there. Uh, Paul Tripp tells us this, that you will never win the battle of sexual sin by just attempting to harness your behavior because every wrong sexual act is connected to a decision, which is connected to a desire in your heart. You always give your heart away before you surrender your body to what is wrong. So the, the try harder method will, will work for a little bit, but it's a Band-Aid on a broken bone. Turn to someone you trust, not right now. Turn to someone you trust. Could be a pastor, a counselor, a friend, a life group leader, an ABF peer, share your struggle. Take what is dark and bring it to the light. When we keep something hidden, we are living the lie that Christ's death on the cross was not great enough for that sin. Church, that's a lie. His death on the cross covers every sin, including those sexual in nature. And by talking about it and owning it, you are shattering the power the sin has over you. Break that bondage. If you'd feel more comfortable, put your email address on one of these cards. And put it in my box out there. This is completely anonymous. And either myself, one of the other pastors on staff, or an elder. Thanks for volunteering, elders. Appreciate you guys. One of us will reach out and we'll journey this with you. You don't have to do this alone. Use these cards. You don't have to write the whole thing on it. Just put your name and an email address, give it to me and we'll we'll follow up. Now there's some of you in this room who aren't necessarily responding to sexual sin in your own lives, You've been hurt by it. I spoke to you just a moment ago. You've been hurt from someone else's distorted, selfish view of sex. Again, please hear me when I say, I'm sorry. You are loved. And that was not what God intended. I can't begin to imagine some of the pain you've experienced. And you don't have to walk this alone. I want you to know that there is hope and healing. Please know that you are prayed for, you are loved, and you have advocates if you need them. So I've kind of nudged people to reach out and begin to process. What if someone comes to you? What if you are the trusted friend that someone turns to? You're probably like, oh, Matt, thanks a lot. Let's take a page from Christ's book. Remember in John 8, when that, that woman was caught in adultery? and she was pulled out, and you have all these Pharisees surrounding her about ready to stone her. First of all, I have no idea why they didn't pull the man too. I don't get that. But Jesus walks up, and they try to catch him in a contradiction, right? And what does he do? Starts drawing, just drawing in sand. And he says, hey, you know what? By all means, go ahead and stone her. But uh, make sure that uh, if you have sinned, I wouldn't throw that stone. He basically gives them freedom to go ahead and do it, but but says, hey, let those of you who have not sinned cast the first stone. And he continues to draw. If someone comes to you, I wouldn't just draw on a napkin. (laughs) Don't steal that page from Jesus' book. But at the end of that, that little story, that interaction, um, nobody threw a stone. Nobody condemned her because they were just as sinful. If someone turns to you as their trusted friend, don't offer shame. Do not offer condemnation. Remember Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not yours to heap on someone else. They've taken a very uh, courageous step in sharing something that is deep within them. Friend, point them to Jesus. Point them to scripture. Remember, it's about identifying a sin, it's about removing it, and then it is replacing it with truth. We can hate what is evil and then cling to what is good. Be the mechanism that offers good. And realize that it's not your job to fix anything. That we are just walking alongside this person towards Christ. You are just a resource to help on the journey. Don't be Jesus, but offer them Jesus. So addictions are real, and they're complex. And I almost, I hesitated giving action points this morning because of the the vast variety of sexual immorality is out there in our culture. The what-ifs, I would imagine, are just running in your minds. I'm, I'm sorry for that. There's not a simplistic answer. The simple answer is that this is all sin. Sin is underlying all of it, but in the how that plays out, it is very complex. So everyone, there's hope. Our God is a redemptive God. Our God is a God of redemption, and He is in the business of taking what is broken and bringing life back to that individual. Our God is in the business of healing. And more than any person, pastor or counselor, I would encourage you this morning to turn to Christ. Lean into him and receive the peace, comfort, and grace that only he can give. see, let's be a church who counter-culturally flees from sexual immorality and loves those who need it. Would you stand with me and pray? We'll close out with one more song. Father, we love you, we need you, and we are thankful for the life you've given us through Christ. Father, I pray for those this morning who are hurting. Father, I pray that your spirit would comfort. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling. May your spirit give confidence. May your spirit... uh, be the one they listen to rather than the noise of culture. Father, help us to put to death these earthly desires, these fleshly, sinful natures and turn back to you, fleeing from sexual immorality. Lord, we love you. We need you. And we're thankful for your son. Thanks, Father. Amen.
1: only perfect example that we have of this covenant of faithfulness is in Jesus. Let's turn our eyes to that. Let's sing of his faithfulness to us and let's be moved to praise in response to him. like a covenant of old and your love is enduring through the winter rain and beyond the horizon with mercy for today
0: Today, church, let us go walking throughout the day with His praise ever on our lips. Let's allow that truth, that praise to not just infiltrate our voices, but also our minds as well. You know, we have a holy God. And in First Thessalonians chapter 4, I think God gives us the answer to the question, God, what's your will for my life? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Your holiness is God's will for your life. It is God's will for you that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid, you should flee from sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like those who do not know God. So church, let us pursue Christ today, and let's let his praise ever be on our lips. If you need to talk to somebody, we've got a couple in the back in the counter room, they'd love to interact with you. I'll be up here, or on the back, this card. Just put your name with an email address or a cell number. We'd love, to, we'd love to journey this with you guys. I hope you have a wonderful July 31st, and uh, go get either some Grecos or Fox Meadows today. Enjoy some ice cream after this sermon. Have a great day. Love you guys.